Okay, good afternoon uh, everyone. Welcome to the Oxford Martin School and our special event to launch uh, Bill Janeway's book. I'm absolutely delighted uh, that Bill is here with us. Uh, he is a co-founder of the Institute for New Economic Thinking uh, and as you might be aware we've just established uh, the first uh, of the university-based hubs in Oxford uh, for the Institute uh, for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. Uh, to introduce Bill, uh, is the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, uh, Eric Weinhocker, uh, who is a recent recruit to Oxford. He joined us in May. Uh, he had been a partner at McKinsey's, uh, very involved in the McKinsey's Global Institute and many other parts of the excellent work that McKinsey's do. Uh, but he's also been uh, at the forefront of changing economic thinking in his book, The Origins of Wealth is something which I commend to you uh, as a great source of new thinking on sources of growth. So, Eric, welcome, and to the other four. Thank you very much, Ian, and, and thank you to the Oxford Martin School for hosting this event tonight. Uh, it's my great honor and pleasure to uh, introduce Bill Janeway for uh, this evening's talk. Um, there's an old and slightly uh, off-color joke, so apologies, uh, that when economists talk about the economy, it's a bit like teenagers talking about sex. It's uh, high on theory and short on practice. <laughs> now, Bill is uh, very unique in that he's one of the few people who knows a lot about both economic theory uh, and economic practice. On the theory side, uh, Bill received his PhD in economics from Cambridge, where he was a Marshall Scholar. And his dissertation was quite presciently on uh, policy during the Great Depression, something that's been fairly relevant in, in recent times. Uh, and ever since, he's maintained a keen interest in uh, economics and strong connections uh, to the academic world, uh, including uh, being a founder uh, of the Cambridge Endowment for uh, Research and Finance. And Bill currently has visiting appointments in the economics departments of both uh, uh, Cambridge University uh, and at uh, Princeton. Um, and uh, Bill was recently recognized with an honorary uh, CBE for his very significant role that he's played at Cambridge uh, over many, many uh, years. Um, now, on the practice side, uh, Bill has had an enormously successful 24-year uh, career as a managing director uh, at uh, Warburg Pincus, one of the world's leading uh, venture capital firms. And I can say that Bill has seen uh, capitalism from the inside. Uh, he's participated as a, as a, as a principal player in uh, Schumpeter's um, uh, process of creative destruction and has been involved in helping many innovative young technology uh, companies disrupt their industries and, uh, and grow. Uh, and Bill is also someone who sees that theory and practice need each other. And I've had the great pleasure of getting to know Bill uh, through our involvement in the Institute for uh, New Economic Thinking, where Bill is uh, one of the co-founders. And INET's mission is very much in the spirit of Bill's work to ensure that economic theory uh, advances to be able to address uh, some of the great challenges that the world faces, particularly in the wake of the financial crisis, and to ensure that public policy practice uh, is informed uh, by the latest and most innovative uh, economic thinking. Uh, and as Ian mentioned, we're very fortunate to have an INET-funded uh, center uh, here at Oxford that was uh, established in May uh, and uh, that is working hard on this integration of theory and practice and is also looking forward to collaborating with its uh, sister program in Cambridge uh, that Bill is uh, very much uh, involved in and helped establish. Now, uh, we're here tonight to talk about Bill's new book, uh, Doing Capitalism, is, is also very much in that uh, spirit. 
as it melds, uh, I think, a lifetime of, of observations uh, and understand, deep understanding of theories about how the economy works with decades uh, of, of practical experience. And one only has to look at the back of the book uh, to the extremely glowing blurbs by figures such as uh, Mark Andreessen, George Soros, Nouriel Roubini, and John Seeley Brown uh, to see what a tremendous uh, achievement uh, this book is. And uh, I, I've seen Bill speak uh, many times before. I know that we're in for a real treat tonight. So join me in welcoming Bill Janeway. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, am, I, am I live? Am I making a lot of noise? I think you can hear me. Um, so um, in 1971, 40 years ago, well, 41 years ago, I left Cambridge. Uh, with a doctorate in economics and a remarkable intellectual endowment. I had been supervised by Richard Kahn, Keynes' leading student, and had passed four years immersed in the economics of Keynes, and as you will hear, by that I mean not Keynesian economics. This meant recognition first of the integration of economic finance at every level, from the most micro scale of the individual agent, especially the investor, to the aggregate scale of the macro economy. Second, this carried with it a, a skeptical stance towards the notion of efficient markets and the promise of stable equilibrium. Third, it meant recognition, uh, and perhaps this is the most important, uh, of the inescapable, the, the ontological uncertainty under which all economic and financial decisions are made. The consequence of this professionally was that I discovered I could not teach Samuelson's neoclassical synthesis. And that was what was on offer across all the departments of economics in the United States. So I left academia. I stumbled into the innovation economy by way of joining one of the many private investment banking firms that populated old Wall Street, all of which were subsidized by the fixed brokerage commissions imposed by the New York Stock Exchange. The firm I joined, F. Eberstadt, was distinguished by an exclusive focus on the science-based industries from chemicals to pharmaceuticals and on to electronics and computing. This at a time when sell-side investment research was still an honorable profession. Doing capitalism at F. Eberstadt gave me the opportunity to learn how, supported by the state and mediated by the financial markets, technological innovation transforms the market economy. The innovation economy begins with discovery and culminates in speculation. Over some 250 years, economic growth has been driven by successive processes of trial and error and error and error. Upstream exercises in research and invention and downstream experiments in exploiting the new economic space thereby opened. Each of these activities necessarily generates much waste, much waste along the way. Dead-end research programs, useless inventions, failed commercial ventures. In between, the innovations that, that transform the architecture of the market economy, from canals to the internet, have required massive investments to construct networks whose value in use could not be imagined at the outset of deployment. And so, at each stage, the innovation economy depends on sources of funding that are decoupled from immediate concern for economic return. Upstream, when mechanical tinkering yielded to scientific discovery as the basis for commercially significant innovation, funding initially was supplied by the great monopolies spawned by the second industrial revolution. 
These corporations, supported or at least tolerated by the state, channeled a portion of their monopoly rents into central research labs. Over a long generation after World War II, their seemingly unassailable market positions were lost to competition or deregulation. But by then, a cadre of political entrepreneurs had successfully invented national security and human health as legitimizing rationales for direct state investment in science. The transformational networks that implement the innovation economy can be planned, built, and funded by the state. The U.S. interstate highway system is an outstanding example. They can also be planned, built, and funded by the willing collaboration of promoters and speculators. The original British railway system is the example here. In each case, the calculus of expected economic return was a secondary consideration. Hence, the endless miles of superhighway crossing the empty wilderness of the American West and the multiplication of competing routes and destructive competition that followed hard on the British railway mania of the 1840s. 21 ways to get from London to Brighton. Downstream, the innovation economy is driven by financial speculation. Throughout the history of capitalism, financial bubbles have emerged and exploded wherever liquid markets and assets exist. The objects of speculation have ranged across a spectrum that challenges the imagination, from the iconic tulip bulbs to gold and silver mines to the debt of newly established countries of unknowable wealth, and again and again, to property and to the shares that represent ownership of corporations. The central dynamic is that the price of the financial asset is separated from the underlying cash flows, past, present, or possible future, generated by the economic assets it represents. Speculators in the financial asset can, and often do, profit, even when the project they have financed fails. Inevitably, the speculation collapses. The more it's been fueled by credit that has infected the banking system, the more disastrous the economic consequences, and the broader and more urgent the pleas for public relief. Occasionally, decisively, the object of speculation is the financial representation of one of those fundamental technological innovations, canals, railroads, electrification, automobiles, airplanes, computers, the internet, deployment of which at scale transforms the market economy. From the wreckage of the financial bubble, as Carlotta Perez illustrates in her, in her book, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, five times now since the 1750s, a new economy emerges. Both upstream and downstream, absence of market discipline is the essence of the process. Contrary to the central dogma of neoclassical economics, efficiency is not the virtue of a market economy when growth is driven by that creative destruction identified by Schumpeter as the engine of economic development. The prime virtue is the ability to tolerate the unavoidable waste that accompanies economic evolution. So the state has become central to the innovation economy's dynamics, to fund the upstream research that generates discovery and invention, to support the deployment of new networks, to serve as a creative customer for the products and services generated, and to preserve continuity in the market economy when the speculative bubble that has funded its transformation bursts. I've come to read this history as driven by three sets of continuous, reciprocal, interdependent games played between the state, the market economy, and financial capitalists. 
Through the centuries, the state and the market economy have variously collaborated and competed in the allocation of resources and the distribution of income and wealth, each seeking to exploit the other. And financial capitalists have ever been ready to exploit discontinuities in market and political processes while depending on those same processes for their prosperity and even at times for their survival. Thus, over some 250 years, the innovation economy has emerged from a three-player game as indeterminate in its outcomes from time to time as the three-body problem in physics. In this lecture, I will explore the dynamics of that game through the lens of US venture capital, so often identified as the distinctive, even a miraculous, engine of innovation. Examining the context in which the American venture capital industry emerged and, <clears throat> for a brief two decades, flourished, can illuminate both its own limited role and that of the two institutions on which it has depended. In 1980, following regulatory amendments to allow pension funds to invest in risky assets such as venture capital, the total capital committed to members of the National Association of uh, Venture Capital, the National Venture Capital Association, was two billion dollars, about five and a half billion dollars in current uh, in current dollars. Twenty years later, as you can see, in uh, 2000, the volume of capital committed to venture capital firms soared and peaked at 105 billion, as the state pension funds piled in needless to say, as very late stage pitches. Access to the stock market throughout this whole period through 2000 was, for venture-backed companies was almost continuous, punctuated by several hot IPO markets and culminating in the great dot-com telecom bubble of 99 and 2000. To provide some sense of scale, the total amount of capital raised in all venture-backed IPOs in the mini-bubble year of 1983 we thought it was a bubble, it was a foothill, was just under $4 billion, slightly more than $10 billion in, 20, in current dollars. The amount raised in 1999 and 2000 in each of those years were first $21 billion and more than $25 billion. So here we have a flag for identifying the factor that has dominated venture capital returns over the past generation, namely the state of the public equity markets and especially the market for initial public offerings. Looking across the entire span from 1980 to the post-bubble era, the dependence of venture capital returns on access to the IPO market is clear. My own research, uh, in collaboration with Professor Michael McKenzie of the University of Sydney, characterized each quarter since the start of 1980 by the number of venture-backed IPOs and the proportion of them that were for companies not yet profitable. McKenzie and I used these figures to generate an index of IPO market <coughs> speculation. We found that when distributions back to the investors coincided with conditions that were those of a bubble stock market, a financial bubble, the returns were extraordinary, 76% for the median. Uh, when, when exits took place under depressed IPO market conditions, the median return, as you can see, was only 9%. Now, the impact of the bubble and its aftermath on the profile of venture capital returns, thus, is enormous. <coughs> From the incipient emergence of a venture capital industry in 1981 through funds launched, launched in 1994, aggregate return of capital, net of fees and carried interest to limited partners, 
was about three and a quarter times the capital committed. For the 95 vintage, it was six times. And it was over five times for the 96 vintage. That was the last vintage that really benefited from the bubble. From 1998 on, the aggregate total value to paid in capital for members of the NBCA has never exceeded <coughs> one and a half times. The 10-year return on the US venture capital index turned negative as of the end of 2009, declined at a compound annual rate of 2% through 2010, and has lagged the NASDAQ, the index of the, uh, uh, the junior market, which is where venture capital IPOs trade, uh, has lagged it throughout the last uh, 10 years. Correlated with the decline in venture returns since 2000 is a sharp and prolonged decline in the IPO market itself, from an average of 547 IPOs during the 1990s to less than 200 per year since 2001. <coughs> After a post-bubble rebound in the mid-2000s, new commitments to venture capital have declined sharply to $16 billion in 2009, $14 billion in 2010, and $18 billion in 2011. The president of the NBCA, Mark Heeson, summarized the state of the industry when he presented the data on 2011 fundraising, concluding that our, our cottage industry is indeed getting smaller still, and that will impact the startup ecosystem over time. Now, this dependence of venture returns on the state of the IPO market at time of exit is one of four stylized statistical facts about venture capital in the United States. The second one, widely recognized and explored in the academic literature, is the extraordinary skew in these returns. A very small number of venture capital funds and firms, less than 30, drive the aggregate returns for the industry as a whole. Now this eye chart uh, pulls out in red the numbers to look at. For the segment, for the, for the 200 plus for uh, venture capital funds, that we explored in detail. The mean and median returns were substantial and, and, and quite attractive, it would appear. But look at the top decile. Absolutely phenomenal. Take the top decile out, the mean drops by 20 percentage points, and the median drops to, 10, to 20%. Now, when you look at this uh, segmentation by time from 1980, it looks like American venture capitalists were learning by doing. They were getting better quinquennium by quinquennium. Wrong. Even with the top funds included, the returns realized by the funds that McKinsey and I studied were broadly comparable in statistical measure with the returns available from the public equity market. Because we had access to the actual dated cash flows between the limited partners who provided us with the data and the funds in which they invested, a rare circumstance, we were able to compare the returns realized by these funds to what an investor would have received by investing in the public market, uh, known as the public market equivalent, a, a, a methodology now very widely used. Following Kaplan and Shore, we created a synthetic alternative fund for each actual fund by, quote, investing the same number of dollars that went into that fund on each date into the NASDAQ index and withdrawing from the index the amount distributed back to the limited partner at each distribution date. Here's your second eye chart. The result was striking. While the mean return to these venture funds was almost 1.6 times what would have been realized by investment in the index, taking out the, um, 
top decile drops it to just over one, and the median return, even with the top decile, sits exactly on top of the NASDAQ index, generating returns that you could have received with complete liquidity and continuous liquidity throughout the investment period. These findings have recently been validated by the Kauffman Foundation, a, the leading source of funding for academic research on entrepreneurship, who's just published a report. Uh, the title speaks for itself. Has, um, let us say, shaken, not stirred the venture capital industry, what's left of it in the United States. Limited partners, they conclude, invest too much capital in underperforming venture funds on frequently misaligned terms. The third stylized fact of venture capital is that, in contrast with all other asset categories, persistence can be detected in the returns of individual managers. Analysis of our data confirmed the findings of a survey of a broader sample of funds. Performance of a given fund is a significant predictor of the returns realized by the next fund of the same managers. Now take all this together. Take the skew in returns, the correlation of fund performance with the public equity markets, and the conclusion is evident. Definition of venture capital as a distinct asset class to which capital should be allocated is literally a category error. Investment in the few persistently successful venture capitalists represents an exceptional opportunity for those with access to them. But broad identif identification of venture capital as a superior asset class, let alone as a transformative instrument of public policy, misinterprets what's proving to be a transient epiphenomenon riding on the back of the greatest bull market in the history of capitalism. The fourth stylized fact of venture capital has been barely touched by academic research. And yet, this has the most profound significance for understanding how the innovation economy works. Professional venture capitalists in the United States have concentrated their activities and earned their returns in a very small number of industrial domains. In the three decades since 1980, information and communications technology, ICT, has accounted for 50 to 75 percent of all dollars invested by members of the NBCA, with its average uh, share usually hovering around 60 percent. ICT and biomedical sectors together have consistently accounted for 80 percent of all dollars invested by venture capitalists. Why has it been in the world of IT and secondarily biomedicine that VCs have been successful? In brief, only in these sectors did the state invest at sufficient scale in scientific research and in its translation to working technology, and through the Defense Department and the National Institutes of Health, our equivalent of the MRC, that is to say, the federal government funded construction of a platform on which entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists who backed them could dance. If you focus just on ICT, national funding on the basic research that enabled the IT revolution was overwhelmingly provided by the Department of Defense. The Soviet threat crystallized in the years following 1945 and amplified first by the Korean War in 1950 and then by the launch of Sputnik in 1957 was the context for the US military's massive commitment to renewing its wartime role as the principal financier of technical research and the principal customer for the products generated therefrom. The scale of R&D funding was substantial. For 25 years through 1978, federal sources accounted for more than 50% of national R&D expenditures 
and exceeded the R&D expenditures of all other OECD, OECD governments combined. By the mid-50s, the Department of Defense had already funded some 20 research projects to construct digital computers. Even before the Soviet launch of Sputnik catalyzed creation of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. From microelectronics and semiconductor devices through computer hardware and software and onto the internet, development of all of the components of digital information and communication technology reflected state policies for R&D and for uh, procurement, as Fabrizio and Maori write. DOD encouraged the entry of new firms and interfirm technology diffusion. Federal procurement supported the rapid attainment by supplier firms of large production runs. Finally, federal support, and this is very important, federal support of innovation in IT contributed to the creation of a large-scale R&D infrastructure in federal labs and especially in U.S. universities. During prior technological revolutions that have defined the succession of new economies since 1750, large-scale government support for the deployment of more or less proven technologies had been significant and at times decisive. Even in the United States, state credit was used to fund canal building and the gift of public land subsidized railroad construction. But the post-World War II engagement of the U.S. Department of Defense to finance both fundamental research at the frontier of science and the technological development necessary to produce reliable devices and systems was unprecedented. Much of the funding was directed to the research labs of the great corporations, AT&T, IBM, RCA, whose monopoly rents had funded scientific advance and innovative engineering through the first half of the 20th century. But much, as noted, was distributed broadly, especially to universities. Moreover, the intellectual property regime, regime by current standards was scandalously loose, as the government demanded. Corporate suppliers were required to share the results of research not only with each other, but with new entrants. When their monopoly profits came under pressure, beginning in the 70s, and all the industrial sponsors pressured their central labs for product-oriented applied R&D, the new academic networks of research and innovation were in place. In my own life as a practitioner, this dual dependency on speculation in the state was exemplified by the most successful investment I ever led, BEA Systems, not to be confused with BAE. The story of BEA dramatizes the complex dynamics of the innovation economy. The source of its initial product was research funded by a state-sanctioned monopoly that, when liberated to compete commercially, had no idea how to do so. Its phenomenal growth was a function of the maturation of the internet, offspring of DARPA, as an environment for commerce. And the extraordinary investment returns that it delivered were due to the speculative excesses of investors who had recognized the emergence of a new digital economy. BEA, that is to say, represented the apotheosis of the three-player game's intersection with the innovation economy. In 1995, my firm, Warburg Pincus, backed three experienced <coughs> executives out of the industry, Bill Coleman, Ed Scott, and Alfred Schwang, B-E-A. Our shared mission was to leverage the new generation of computing technologies in order to exploit IBM's version of the innovator's dilemma, its inability to cannibalize its own hugely profitable franchises. Together, we identified a potentially enormous opportunity to deliver software that would enable large enterprises to manage their mission-critical business transactions on the new distributed computing networks. 
We jump-started the venture by acquiring relevant technology called Tuxedo that had been developed by Bell Labs after AT&T had accepted that it wasn't incapable of effectively bringing the technology to market. That acquisition transformed BEA into a business with annual revenues in excess of $100 million by January 3197, the end of its first full fiscal year, as it reached positive cash flow from operations. The success of Tuxedo enabled BEA to go public in April 97, barely a year after that acquisition. In turn, a second decisive acquisition was contingent on that timely IPO. By 98, the explosive growth of the internet was visible to all interested parties, but none of the extant technologies had been designed to accommodate online electronic transactions with literally millions of simultaneous users. As BEA worked to augment Tuxedo, a number of startups surfaced and almost as rapidly were acquired. Alfred Chuang, who was running BEA's engineering, identified one whose technology met his exacting standards and convinced Bill Coleman of the strategic value of the proposed acquisition, and also convinced me. The venture and its product were called WebLogic. As of September 98, it had cumulative revenues of all of $500,000. But as the bubble began to inflate with the promise of the economic transformation being wrought by the internet, so did the valuation of relevant startups. WebLogic's asking price was no less than $150 million on $500,000 of revenue. Some 15% of BEA's then $1 billion market valuation itself inflated by speculative fever. Had BEA not been able to use its own stock as the currency for the acquisition, it could not have happened. The acquisition of WebLogic represented a conscious decision, and within the board, a very controversial decision, to refuse to accept the terms of the innovator's dilemma, and instead to attack our own core business before anyone else could. Tuxedo was a massive software platform whose installation and tuning took months of work by teams of highly trained engineers, and took months uh, of selling time to get, it, to get it purchased by enterprise customers. WebLogic, by contrast, incorporated the most advanced software engineering techniques of the day to achieve rapid deployment and high performance. It could be readily scaled from single user to very large application environments. Since BEA was now a trusted source of mission-critical software for the enterprise market, word spread across the technical communities that WebLogic was the way to transform the internet into an effective and secure platform for commerce. The result was phenomenal growth. From 290 million in the fiscal year ended January 99 to almost 500 million the following year, and more than 800 million in the fiscal year ended January 31, 2001. The conjuncture that linked BEA's growth as a business with the stock market's evaluation of the new economy made BEA one of the all-time great venture investments. Now, anybody, anytime somebody tells you that you can never know whether you're in the bubble, remember that you saw this chart. This is what a bubble looks like. Uh, the um, BEA stock, which had been split twice, two for one, uh, reached an all-time peak of 85 in the, uh, December, the month of December 2000, or 320 on the shares that had originally been issued to the public at six. In August 99, Warwick Pincus began to distribute its ownership. We did so vigorously. Within 16 months, our $54 million cash investment had been transformed into liquid, freely tradable shares with cumulative value at time of distribution of $6.5 billion. 
Now, the bubble of 99-2000 revealed the financial dynamics of the downstream phase of the innovation economy at its most extreme. The host of hopeful monsters, the vast majority of which failed, could be funded precisely because those who provided the financing needed to have only minimal concern for the uh, fundamental economic value of the ventures. The investment decisions by the founding venture capitalists as well as by the willing IPO purchasers as the bubble got going were not informed by evaluation of the future cash flows of the projects. The decisions were driven by the hope, indeed the expectation, that well before any cash flows could or would be generated, the shares would be sold to yet more optimistic or foolish buyers. In other words, as always in a bubble, the speculators hoped to get out before they had to find out what their investments were really worth in economic terms. Finance theorists have constructed a rich literature on bubbles, much of it motivated by trying to understand this kind of phenomenon. A great deal of that work <coughs> consists of formal models to demonstrate how the actions of rational investors, as defined by financial economists, can drive prices away from their, quote, fundamental the discounted net present value of expected future cash flows, for example, due to limits to arbitrage. The relevance of much of this work, however, is compromised by a residual faith in that knowable fundamental, privileging a certain set of investors with accurate expectations of a necessarily uncertain future. <coughs> that work is missing the first reality of the equity markets. William Goldman, novelist and screenwriter, legendarily defined the law of Hollywood, the law of Hollywood, to be no one knows anything. <laughs> the law of the equity markets is both softer and more complex. No one knows enough, and everyone at some level knows that about herself and everyone else. Roman Friedman and Michael Goldberg put it nicely. In the vast majority of cases, the prospects of investment projects, the stream of future returns, cannot be understood in standard probabilistic terms. This is obviously true for investments in innovative products and processes. Even more deeply irrelevant, however, are market models that begin by supposing the existence of a rational representative agent. In fact, the capital markets are populated by a diversity of human beings with widely varying beliefs and degrees of confidence and access to more or less imperfect information. The markets, after all, were invented precisely in order to enable participants with differing views to trade titles to assets with each other. The notion of a representative agent is incoherent, justifiable only by the fanciful belief that trading activity will costlessly converge to that fundamental value which, by hypothesis, the representative agent already knows. The phenomenon that terminated the dot-com telecom bubble in 2000 stands witness. Now, the upper chart shows you the value of total distributions by venture capital funds to their limited partners. In the third quarter, it was all of less than $4 billion. In the fourth quarter of 99, it rose to more than $10 billion, and then doubled again in the first quarter to more than $21 billion, by far the largest realization by VC firms ever before or since. As shown on the bottom curve, the ratio of stock distributions to cash distributions increased from one and a quarter in the third quarter of 99 to almost three times in the fourth quarter 
and then peaked at almost four times in the first quarter of 2000. By distributing shares, rather than selling them and distributing cash, the venture funds could mark the value of their realizations at the market price before the impact of incremental sales from the previously illiquid supply was felt. Having been locked up, typically for six months, by the terms of their contracts with the underwriters of the IPOs, venture capitalists were finally free that winter to allow their limited partners to sell, and sell they did. But no, this signal requires that there be a buyer for every seller, and this presupposes the existence of multiple traders in the market disagreeing with each other as to the relationship of price to value. Since 2000, the exploration of bubble dynamics has broken out of the fetters of the rational expectations hypothesis to consider the behavior of agents whose expect expectations differ and who themselves recognize the limits of their own and others' knowledge. But it's not enough to contrast the new behavioral finance literature with the rational bubble literature that preceded it. For in this term, rational, and in its antithesis, there is a nexus of confusion that infects both academic and popular discussion of how economic financial agents think and act. Much of this originated with the hijacking of the term rational by the theorists of rational expectations. As Freeman and Goldberg have written, a rational profit-seeking individual understands that the world around her will change in non-routine ways. She simply cannot afford to believe that contrary to experience, she has found a, quote, true overarching forecasting strategy, let alone that everyone else has found the same strategy as well. Confusion is also created when the deployment of heuristics, rules of thumb that help investors make decisions under uncertainty, is branded irrational. During my own education in the craft of venture capital, I learned early and painfully that the sole conjoint hedge against the unanticipatable onset of adversity when stuff happens, is cash and control. That is, unequivocal access to enough cash to buy the time to find out what's going on, and enough control to shift the parameters of the problem. At the micro scale of the venture capitalists, this means the power to force a sale of the project, or to recapitalize it towards an amended goal, and it usually begins by firing the CEO. But the imperative to hedge uncertainty can be read at grander scale. From J.P. Morgan's construction of a fortress balance sheet at the onset of the global financial crisis, to China's accumulation of $3 trillion of reserves over the decade from the Asian flu at the end of the last millennium. In every case, it means holding irrationally large reserves of cash relative to what would be appropriate in the fantasy world of complete and efficient markets. In some, Cassius was wrong. The fault is indeed in our stars. Born into a universe in which the second law of thermodynamics holds, and time's arrow moves in one direction only, we cannot run the equations backwards. We spend half our lives arguing about the meaning of a past that we have actually experienced, and the other half speculating about an infinite array of alternative futures. In this context, Attributing market inefficiency and failure to the irrationality of investors is fundamentally misfocused. Rather, let us say that by and large, they, we, do the best we can given the cards we have been dealt. In parallel with the maturation of the bubble literature within finance theory, attention is finally being drawn to why bubbles matter to the real economy. 
And I found all of four papers on this subject written over the last 10 years, only four. They matter because not only do they transfer wealth from greater to less great fools and to the knaves who prey on the former, occasionally, as with BEA, they transfer wealth to fortunate opportunists and insightful entrepreneurs, you get to choose which category I fall into, <laughs> who are granted access to cash on favorable terms and put it to work with astounding consequences. As usual, you might expect me to say this, Keynes got there first. The daily revaluations of the stock exchange, he wrote, inevitably exert a decisive influence on the rate of current investment. There's no sense in building a new enterprise at a cost greater than that at which a similar existing one can be purchased. Well, there's an inducement to spend on a new project what may seem an extravagant sum if it can be floated off on the stock exchange at an immediate profit. In the spirit of what I call Keynes's bridge, one recent theoretical exercise models the game played between entrepreneurs and speculators as each seeks to evaluate the potential return to innovation, thereby generating positive feedback between the prices of financial assets and the volume of investment in the corresponding innovative technology. A complementary empirical investigation estimates the extent to which the dot-com telecom bubble Enabled, promising, uh, enabled huge increase in R&D spending by new firms. So you can see that, that R&D spending, this is, uh, uh, seems to be a neoclassical pointer. Uh, the R&D spending <laughs> tracks the, the new issues uh, from firms less than 15 years old. As the history of BEA confirmed, the role of speculative excess here complements the role of the state. Now, of course, economists have long recognized that market failure legitimizes state intervention, in theory. And the market's failure to allocate sufficient resources to R&D is often cited as a prime example, going back to Ken Arrow and Dick Nelson 60 years ago. Yet as an effective rationale for state intervention, market failure has proved inadequate. Instead, causes that transcend economic calculus, national development, national security, the conquest of disease, have been required. So upstream and downstream, the dynamics of the innovation economy challenge the philosophical core of neoclassical economics. For the evolution of the innovation economy through historical time resists, defies reduction to the optimal intertemporal allocation of resources. Yet, in the face of historical experience, persistent and excessive devotion to the principles of neoclassical economics has consequences. Those who hold the state to rigorous criteria of efficiency in the allocation of resources not only inhibit toleration of the Schumpeterian waste inherent <coughs> in the trial and error process of innovation, they also encourage toleration of the deadweight loss that is represented by unemployed resources of human labor and physical capital, what in, in recognition of Keynes's valiant assault on the phenomenon I call Keynesian waste. During the 30s, Keynes sought to establish a new macroeconomic rationale for responsive state intervention, independent of the specific projects it financed. He began with the recognition that the marginal productivity of unused resources is negative, as skills atrophy and machines rust. Any project that generates incremental consumption by providing employment of whatever sort would be a less bad alternative even stuffing old bottles with pound notes 
and burying them under mountains of municipal waste. <laughs> Keynes failed in this project as he ruefully recognized in 1940. When full employment did return, as it had by 1940, it was the result of the most economically wasteful of all imaginable <coughs> state investments, mobilization for total war. Today, 75 years on, the same argument that blocked civilian investment by the state has been effectively remobilized. Definitionally wasteful debt financed state expenditures will undermine the confidence of businessmen and investors alike. The oxymoronic pursuit, and I keep thinking that the first two syllables of that word are redundant, of expansionary fiscal austerity serves both to rationalize the toleration of Keynesian waste and to limit the toleration of Schumpeterian waste. The double-edged impact is compounded by the interaction between the two effects. When Keynesian waste is at a minimum, that is in a high-growth, fully employed economy, the consequences of Schumpeterian waste will be more creative and less destructive. More innovations will be profitably exploited, and the people and capital stranded in legacy occupations will be more rapidly redeployed, and very much vice versa. Austerity and efficiency, that is to say, are the twin enemies of innovation. Although Keynesian waste today is at a markedly lower level than characterized the Great Depression, the rich nations of the world seem determined to reenact the greatest of historical failures of economic and financial policy. Forces have been at work for a generation to delegitimize the state as an economic actor. To the extent their success persists, in the near term we will forego growth, employment, and income. In the longer term, we will witness the West's leadership of the innovation economy pass, even as the next new economy can already be defined in broad strokes. Like the digital one, we are currently still learning how to explore and enjoy. That low carbon economy can be built only on a base of substantial state investment and agreed rules of engagement across both public and private sectors. To advance the frontier of needed innovation, much science remains to be done. A host of technologies, batteries, solar cells, fuel cells among them, require extended investment to improve both absolute performance and the ratio of performance to cost. And the protocols for bringing alternative renewable energy sources online and into the intelligent grid that is yet to be designed, let alone deployed, will need to be standardized, as were the networking and internetworking protocols of the digital economy. However, no significant private sector investment of the new infrastructure, let alone the speculative funding necessary to finance deployment at scale, can be expected while the return on that investment remains exposed to the volatile markets for conventional energy sources. Only collective state action, the prospect for which is not at all visible, can enable the new alternative energy technologies to compete effectively. As of the development of the digital economy, state <coughs> procurement programs open to all will be bound to prove more effective than selective state subsidies or loan guarantees to wannabe winners. Even while we're forced to wait for in frustration for the next new economy, there's work for the practitioner in completing the rollout of this one. But there is also much work for the theorist. I did not expect to live to see the economics I had absorbed at Cambridge more than 40 years ago, the economics of Keynes, of uncertainty at the level of the individual and of consequent instability at the level of the integrated financial economy, again become so relevant and so broadly recognized as such within the discipline.
The intellectual entrepreneurs who have accepted the challenge to reconstruct financial economics are largely motivated by recognition that markets are not the mechanical, self-regulating artifacts of neoclassical theory. So the state may be let back in at the macroeconomic level after current exercises in austerity have failed to generate renewed economic growth. But the reconstruction of financial economics will remain incomplete so long as its scope excludes a positive role for the state in the three-player game of, in of innovation. The intellectual framework that relates how Schumpeterian waste can be productively sponsored by the state is as urgently required as theories that subvert the toleration of Keynesian waste. Thank you very much.